are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything's possible. Live from the site of no future Olympics at all. This is the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett's joined by Chris Moore and Sam Mulberry. Aren't you uh, believe that we don't have an Olympics coming uh, up here? A little what if counterfactual history. Did you guys know that this state almost did host two Olympic Games? What? Yeah, I'm stretching the word almost to its breaking point. Okay, the closest please. we really got was in 1996, the U.S. was kind of due for a game. And Sam, I don't know if you remember this growing I up do. here, but Minneapolis-St. Paul was the runner-up to Atlanta for what turned out to be not as super successful games. I always like to think that we would have done it better, but I know that's not true. Um, but <laughs> you wouldn't be a Minnesotan if you didn't think that. That's how we think. Uh, but here's the really obscure thing. In uh, 1929, the International Olympic Committee was deciding on the Winter Olympics, and it was going to be a U.S. site. It ultimately went to Lake Placid, but not only did Minneapolis put in a bid, but the city of Duluth, Minnesota, put in a serious bid to host the Winter Olympics in 1932. <laughs> which probably tells you a lot about what the Winter Olympics were like in 1932. But like Duluth was actually a serious like international port city at that point. It had uh, uh, delusions of grandeur, and it also hosted an NFL team at that time in history. So a little Duluth trivia for you all. There you go. Thanks, man. Everyone in the Iron Range is listening and getting excited now. All right. Well, you can tell we're kind of still – we've got the Olympic spirit. Is that fair to say, you guys? I I've always so. got the Olympic spirit. Right. So uh, segment two, we're going to delve into a couple of sports we haven't talked about at all, but we want to keep going with the Olympic theme because we've been doing that in class, history and politics of sports. Uh, so students are still working on a book review uh, that's due on Friday. It's a reminder to students if you've missed that. Uh, for Victor Chai's book, Beyond the Final Score, which says a lot about especially the Beijing, Seoul, and Tokyo games of uh, 2008, 90, 88, and 64. So we'll come back to that. But uh, the other thing that was happening in class, uh, Chris Moore, I know that you enjoy a good draft. Sure. Real life. You also enjoy a good fantasy draft. And so students were playing fantasy Olympic drafting this week. And I'm not yeah. going to say anything more because I don't think I should. Can you explain what students will do? And then we're going to bring in a real life Olympic draft expert to talk about this. So I'm, I should say, this isn't even close to the weirdest thing that I've held a draft for. In the political science department, we've had drafts on the best political movies. Uh, one of my colleagues has actually led his students through uh, a round of fantasy Congress where you draft legislators um, and score points based on legislation passed and uh, um, TV appearances, those sorts of things. Press Is filibuster yeah. like a special teams touchdown or something? Yeah, like it's, like a, it's like a pick six. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so we thought at this, uh, one of the things we were really missing was the fact that there's not going to be Olympics this year. We sort of, as you and I had sort of planned this class long before coronavirus, we thought, well, this would be great. We'll sort of prime the pump for students to be thinking about the Olympics as a political and historical event. And then they'll actually watch the Olympics and they'll be able to turn to their family and their friends over the summer and say, this, explain this. And they'll, they'll just, and, and, and uh, really kind of make those connections. Unfortunately, because of uh, COVID-19, uh, the Tokyo Olympics have now been put off until 2021. 
And so we're still going to have an Olympiad. I feel pretty good about them happening in 2021, although I think life is going to be different in all kinds of ways that we can't quite predict yet. But to keep the Olympic spirit alive, we gave students a little bit of a challenge this week, and we asked them in their PLC groups, groups of seven students, to hold a fantasy Olympic draft. And so what they're drafting here instead of players are countries. Now, countries have a longstanding record of how many medals they've won over time, what sports they're strong in, and those things can also shift from year to year, just like a fantasy football or fantasy baseball kind of team. And so we ask students to draft uh, five rounds, so a five-country team per student. And um, but here's the rundown. Uh, we basically set up countries into positions, and the positions we created were great power, so you had to select a country from a great power bracket, and that includes basically the P5, the United Nations, China, U.S., Russia, France, United Kingdom. And I also threw Germany and Japan in there by virtue of the size of their GDP and their, um, and their political importance in the world. Those were also the top, the top seven in medal count. Exactly. So, yeah. I, wouldn't, I didn't plan it that way, but isn't it interesting how money hmm. follows the medals? Now... The second category is any country in Latin America. Mm -hmm. The third country is any country in Africa. The fourth is a small population country. So you had to pick a country with a 2020 population of less than 6 million people. And then a flex. So anything that you hadn't already been picked could be picked for your flex. Except for a great power, according except, to your rules. Yeah, except for a great power. Correct. Okay, and so students were doing this, and hopefully, like, I think the discussion they had maybe was the, the point of this, uh, is we're not going to actually go through and critique their drafts per se, but once you know it, mm -hmm. before we even got the student response, uh, our friend Sam Mulberry sent us a detailed breakdown analysis of what this would involve. So, Sam, Including a full mock draft. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sam, can you explain at least a little bit of the thought that went into it? Like, what kind of strategies were you thinking? Where do you, how do you draft for value in something like this? Right. And I think I, I will say I have never drafted fantasy Olympics before, but I am an, an avid fantasy sports player and especially fantasy football. I, I usually start sometime around... Um, late July, and I listen to probably 50 to 60 hours of podcasts and do a lot of math um, to get ready for my fantasy football draft. And so I did the same thing here. Now, if I really was going to spend time, um, I would have looked at multiple Olympi Olympiads to get more of like a more of an aggregate for medal counts. I was just looking at the 2016 Olympics um, as I did this. So it's, it's imperfect in that way. Uh, but the key is to think about, like, as you said, value. So if every team has to have one of those top seven, there quickly comes a point where it's not worth drafting uh, in the first round one of those uh, great powers because, right. you know, it's it, so, so uh, Chris Moore and I were talking about where is the cutoff where it's like, I would actually rather have um, a different position than a great power in the first round. Now, the, if you're just going to look at the 2020 or 2016 Olympics, the U.S. is way overpowered, I think. I mean, they're basically, if you drafted them and everything played out the same way, it wouldn't matter who else was on your team. But if you go back to 2012 or, 20, or 2008, um, it looks very different. So I found the cutoff around four. So the top four would be the U.S., Great Britain, China, Russia. Hmm. Um if you had one of the top four picks, you really kind of needed to take that because you because you needed to get one of those teams. But after that, I would let those bottom three great powers go till the seventh round. Now, I don't 
I don't know, Chris. Did you hear of any trading going on? Do people move down in the draft to accumulate extra picks? I don't I think that's still, actually allowed by the rules. But. It's not allowed by the rules. I'm not aware of any of that happening. Um, I had very little gamesmanship happening in the context yeah. of this draft. Okay. Yeah. And and I would say the the thing once you start looking at value, then is what you want to look at are kind of tiers. Like, um, mm-hmm. for example, if, I'm going to pull up for myself just looking at. Um, at Africa for a second here. So if I do my filter on Excel, if I'm just looking at Africa, like the top African nation by far is Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, I mean, they won 13 medals, including six gold medals. So I also did a point system for myself. So I gave five points for a gold, three for a silver, one for a bronze. I don't know what your scoring system is, but I figure a team that won a gold medal is more likely to still win a medal than a team that just won a bronze. So so Kenya won 13 medals, the most of any African nation. By the time you get down to the seventh African nation, you're looking at Nigeria, which won a bronze medal. So the value of Kenya is way higher um, than the the worst, this this not even the worst, the seventh best African nation. So basically you need to think, okay, that's a, that's a kind of country you want to get early. Um, Latin America, the top are country- you was, Ken, Are you saying Kenya is the grunk? Uh, Kenya kind of is actually New Zealand is because for the under, no, no, I would say Kenya is and and, and why is because the drop off comes pretty quick. So you go to South Africa, then Ethiopia, then you're looking at teams that won one or two medal after that. So like you want to get your African nation early if you're not getting one of those top four great powers. Mm -hmm. I would even say you could argue as early as the number two pick, you could be drafting country like Kenya. It might be a little early. You might want to make sure you grab China or Great Britain, but, but, um, Kenya comes really early. Okay, um, should, should we explain why Kenya is so far? I, I think most students actually got this as they're doing their individual thing. But why is it that Kenya gets so many more medals proportion? Because it it's, it's, I mean, it's long distance large running. Right? Yeah, it dominates yeah. certain events, right? Yeah, yeah. and in the same way, Jamaica, um, Jamaica, mm-hmm. and New Zealand in the under six million are unbelievably valuable because. Uh, Jamaica with sprinting and New Zealand with swim. I presume it's mostly swimming. New Zealand uh, gets a lot of medals uh, for the size of its it's country. It's also growing. Growing. sailing. Okay, growing. and so yeah. I mean, we so, should, I so, just want to I just want to mention that as a callback to a few weeks ago when we were talking about race and sports. I mean, this actually came up, right? The the notion that the success of Kenyan distance runners and Jamaican sprinters illustrates some sort of racial essentialism. Right. I mean, so I just wanted to say, like, we've actually dealt with this before and it, it does show up in at least in metal metal tables. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll stop talking because yeah. Sam's more impressed. No, absolutely. And, and the other thing that, that the big question mark I had is what do you do with Brazil? Because Brazil was the number one Latin American country. But what else was Brazil in 2016? The host. They were the host nation. So I, I actually downgraded them a little bit, assuming, because if you look at their 2012, they weren't. I don't even know. I don't think they were the top Latin American country. They were high, but not the top. Uh, Likewise, if we look at those bottom three great powers, medal-wise, Japan would be seventh out of seven. But I would probably put them fifth thinking the host country is going to have some incentive to want to put on a better performance. So I would move them to fifth. And actually, I would go around early with Japan over the other two bottom great powers. So one way of looking at this, uh, Britain actually went up by two medals, if I'm reading the medal tables correct. So they won 65 when London hosts in 2012. But that, Britain actually does well, generally. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's different because it's a great power and the effect is diminished. But um, Right, right. Yeah. Whereas Japan won 41 medals in Rio de Janeiro. And I don't know enough of their history, but I assume they would go up from that in 2012. That, that's my guess, yep. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, any other kind of, uh, what, I mean, we're getting into the fifth round, like any kind of Stefan Diggs picks, Sam, a value mm -hmm. that you're going to find that maybe you would overlook as you get to the flex countries? Well, what surprised me is when we first talked about this before looking at it, uh, we th we looked at the the um, under six million as well. That's where you you have to go grab that early. But actually, there's a lot of countries under six million who perform pretty well. Um, so you know, almost yeah. So so I think that that actually surprised me quite a bit because I was thinking, well, New Zealand, Jamaica, and then it's going to be done. But there's there's um, let me pull this one up because this this actually interest, interested me quite a bit. Um, you have New Zealand, Jamaica. Denmark, Croatia all had double figures in terms of medal counts. So mm -hmm. the under 6 million was a lot deeper than I thought. So you could probably wait on those a little bit. If you don't get New Zealand, Jamaica, um, you could wait and try to grab whichever the fourth one is between Denmark and Croatia. So Chris Moore, I know the, I know you well enough to know you did this assignment because you enjoy fun things and you enjoy strategy <laughs> games. But I also know sure. you well enough to do it because you had a deeper kind of point to make. What are one or two things you were hoping students would take away from this exercise? What, what the the big punchline thing that I want people to take away from this is that uh, medals uh, won in the Olympics are not solely a project a product of the wealth of the country or the population of the country. They're they're idiosyncratic and there's a lot of different explanations and we've already discussed one country in depth on this issue is Kenya. Um, Kenya is not the most populous African country. It's quite stable. It's reasonably wealthy compared to other African countries, but it, that doesn't alone explain that their medal count um, by sheer population or even sheer GDP, Nigeria should be getting 11 medals and Kenya should be getting a bronze. So what explains the difference here? Well, part of it is that there's this culture of distance running in Kenya and that culture itself is self-fueling. And so Kenya gets a better portion of the athletes in its country into distance running and out into competitive distance running. The same thing could be said of Jamaica, for example, when it comes to sprinting. Uh, Jamaica has a culture where everybody in Jamaica sprints. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Primary schools in Jamaica have annual, like, like we don't remember, remember doing field day as a kid? Yeah. Oh. Jamaica has a field day, but you can win field day at your school. And if you win field day, you go on to play against the other schools in their field days. And if you win that, you can eventually be the top third grade sprinter in Jamaica. Kind of like spelling bees, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I won a silver medal in spelling bee. That's that's as much Olympic thing as I can possibly give you all. That's as close as I got. Okay. Okay. I'll stop talking. I, I was I, I wanted to throw into an uh, um I I skipped this out of my lecture on the Olympics, but I thought about adding in sort of like the like some commentary on the demonstration sports and things that were sort of floated as potential Olympic ideas and okay. never quite made it. And spelling bee certainly fits in that in that mold. Um, we'll, we'll talk about what constitutes a sport in segment two. We're actually working our right. way toward that question. Okay, but let me just say this real quick: the, uh, the these these whether it's Jamaican sprinting or Kenyan distance running or some of the sports that Croatia and New Zealand have excelled at, those countries don't just uh, don't just have a culture of doing those sports. They also have national pride around doing those sports. And a perfect example of this is the Romanian gymnastics team. Mm -hmm. uh, which throughout the Cold War under Nicolae Ceausescu, uh, Romania way outperformed what you would expect Romania to do in terms of this, its size or its, or its wealth in terms of women's gymnastics. And the reason that it did so well was because basically the government decided we're going to be good at gymnastics. Right. And so they over and above overspent 
on on women's gymnastics, and the results speak for themselves. They were very successful in that. Well, and they even allowed Romania to. I mean, Romania occupies an odd place in the Cold War because as of the Sino-Soviet split around 1960, Ceausescu actually sides with China yep. and tries to assert a semi-independent role within Europe. And so in 1984, when the Soviet bloc boycotts the LA Games, Romania goes, and that's who's competing against Mary Lou Retton in the gymnastics alongside China, which also mm -hmm. does very well in the LA Games. So for all of these kinds of reasons, we see sort of certain patterns emerging uh, in Olympic medal counts. And that's what I wanted students to grapple with is uh, you have countries in different sort of regions, countries with different power levels, different populations. But even within those, there's, there's enormous variance in terms of how many medals we ex might expect them to win in 2021. So, so here will be my question for you, Chris. Thinking about some of that stuff, is there a country that maybe is is primed to sh to uh show better in 2020 than they would have in previous olympics because of geopolitical things over the last 10 years yeah i mean one of the things you mentioned sam is that the host country typically gets a bump in the number of medals they win that bump is muted when that country is a great power japan i think by all reasonable estimations is a great power but we would still expect them to win more medals but there's also a more muted regional effect and so i would expect countries like south korea and china to still do really well in japan and um, i think that's something to pay attention to but something else to maybe pay attention to and i I, I have no basis for this. This is me wading into your territory, Sam. Um, let's pay attention to the Philippines. And here's why. Uh, the Philippines, uh, under Rodrigo Duterte, is really moved in a highly nationalist populist direction. Uh, Duterte has uh, some simpatico with Trump in certain kinds of ways on issues of crime and immigration and, and other sorts of things. It's Philippines is within the region, so we might expect a little bit of a regional bump anyway. But as, as, as the Philippines turns towards a more authoritarian type of government, we might see Duterte really emphasize Filipino performance in the Olympics. And that might be interesting to watch. Huh. They won uh, They won one silver medal in the 2016 games the Philippines oh, did. Plenty of room to move up. So that's your sleeper pick. Yeah. So I... I... I don't know. We probably shouldn't be planning out episodes this far in advance, but I think we need to do this next spring and then actually have like Olympic broadcasts in the middle of the summer. But let's put that on hold. San uh, uh, sorry, uh, Chris mentioned authoritarian governments. Um, as we exit this unit and as students wrap up the Victor Cha book, I mean, a big theme in his book is the effects of the Olympics on regimes like China's communist regime and vice versa. That regime affected the Olympics in 2008. We talked a lot about the 2008 Beijing Games last week in the 252, the opening ceremonies. So, Chris, in your lecture for this week, you suggested that there were points where maybe Cha was a little bit too optimistic in his read. He was writing in the wake of those games, but it's been more than a decade. Uh, for example, was he too optimistic that those games might actually spark continuing political liberalization in China, either domestically or in its behavior in the international system? Uh, in a word, yes, he was too optimistic. Now, in the wake of the 2008 Beijing Games, we've seen China embark on a brutal suppression of the Uyghur Muslims uh, in Western China. That's been going on now for over six years, uh, really almost dating back to the games themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's that, although has received a lot of international scrutiny and a lot of international appropriation, really hasn't caused China to move in a liberal direction in terms of human rights. There's been, I guess you could argue, some modest tolerance in China for 
uh, religious minorities. As, uh, but it's I, I would say that Cha's idea that the Olympics could be an engine for social change in a country, at least in the China perspective from the 2008, has been really overestimated. Right. I mean, I think it's dangerous to ever bring out Nazi comparisons, but like it does seem like it's more similar to what you watched in 1936, when the Hitler regime does make some effort to mute down like public displays of anti-Semitism in 1936 while Olympics are there. And of course, that goes away immediately. Um, it, that seems more like the effect of what happened post-Beijing in 2008. Um, now, Chris, one thing we should talk about, we, we do not have games in Tokyo this summer, and so we can't look for this for another year. But I mean, if they were happening, or if we can look ahead a year, is there any way in which those games themselves could illustrate any of the core themes that Chad talks about? I mean, it's a very different game. Tokyo was hosted before. It's not making a coming out on the world stage in any way. But what right. might students look for as we finally get to the 2020 games? So I think on this point, Shah is much more uh, has much more purchase to make a, to make some claims. You're right. Uh, Japan is not making a coming out party. This is not like South Korea in '88. This is this is Japan as a highly developed, highly uh, technical, technologically uh, adept society, and. I think that the games despite, uh, next year will be heavily influenced by the echo of coronavirus. I don't know what coronavirus holds for the coming winter season, whether this will continue to plague the global climate or whether we'll see a real um, cessation of the disease. Either way, this, is gonna, this conversation, this narrative is going to get renewed next year for the Olympics. You're bringing in 10,000 athletes, potentially millions of people uh, to Tokyo, I think there'll be a lot of at least Western news stories about what Tokyo is doing to prepare for the games, how they're going to make sure that there isn't an outbreak of disease. And I think what Japan prides itself on is technological sophistication and efficiency. And I think we'll see that really promoted as a way of, of understanding Japanese identity, that if anybody can hold a games after coronavirus, it's Japan and they'll do it right. Yeah. I mean, I think we have, we've, kind of touched off and on about the effects of COVID on the Olympics. And one point we've tried to make is there's really no comparison to this. I mean, the closest you get to it is wartime games that were canceled. And so part of me is tempted to look to what happened in 1948 when London kind of hosted almost accidentally and almost improvised a kind of games, but it was called the austerity games. I mean, England after the war was going through economic depression. There was rationing still in place. It was a very muted kind of, it was very efficient and there were some stars there, but it was a very streamlined Olympic Games. I certainly would not expect that uh, to be the approach that Tokyo Let's takes hope in 2021. Um, although it could be a socially distanced kind of, maybe, maybe yeah. fewer spectators, for example, at events mm -hmm. and, and the way the athletes train or how it could be very but Couldn't you imagine a, a Japanese uh, um Olympic venue hosting, sort of playing into that, sort of creating um, technological models for observation, individualized observation pods for uh, aquatic events uh, or, 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 or court events, right? You know, um, boxes for basketball and, you know, specific kinds of, of public transportation, uh, people movement systems that keep people distant and yet move lots of people efficiently. That's going to be really interesting to see how those kinds of problems get addressed. Right. Speaking of COVID, just briefly, one more non-Olympic thing we wanted to talk about, because we've been so starved for anything to watch sports right on TV. Uh, last Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, my son and I actually watched the NFL draft. Now, normally wow. we don't do this, because even though I'm teaching a sports history class, I don't have ESPN, and it's usually mm -hmm. on uh, ESPN. 
Uh, Sam, I know you were watching on ESPN, but I was watching on ABC. And interestingly, it sounds like we watched two kind of different events. That's like, right. It, even as we talked before air here about what we took away, like what, what was it like on ESPN to watch the NFL draft? Uh, it was, well, it was interesting. I mean, obviously everything's um, at a distance. So we had, you had uh, kind of almost like a Zoom call with, I think six different, um, six different kind of football guys from, you know, like, uh, I can't even remember, McShay was there, Booger McFarlane, some of those, um, uh, I can't remember who else was there, but, and, and, and Trey Wingo was hosting and would sort of th throw to them, but it was very football focused. And what was funny is when I heard, I was listening to a lot of Ringer podcasts and they kept talking about the NFL draft and I was feeling like, man, that does not seem like the draft that I watch because what I heard was how much the NFL and uh, and the coverage leaned into sort of the human interest uh, story. And then... Oh, welcome to ABC's coverage of it. Because yes. what you had, I would describe it was, you've got Roger Goodell hanging out in his man cave in like Westchester County, New York or something, changing clothes every hour or so. Uh, throwing to this Wait, wall what? of fans. Seriously, can I, can I, can I changes. I just interject that I did not watch a minute of this. And so I am listening to this like you were talking about an alien event. So please continue. <laughs> it's like amazing. So you've got Goodell and he then had this screen of fans for each team and he would have to kind of exhort them to make noise and to cheer. Um, but and most even like, welcomes them to boo him, right? right. Trying to get in on the joke. But I mean, what was actually somewhat poignant about it, and what I think ABC was trying to play up on, is what you then watch is, at least in the first round and maybe in the second and third, you'd go then to the living room of, of these families, and you get the announcement. And you always had some of this, like, at the draft itself, but now you get it in someone's home and the kind of emotion that's unleashed, right, is 22 years of collectively striving for this. Or sometimes it's like siblings had been drafted, right? I mean, like it was it was genuinely moving, and ABC played up on this. They had all sorts of kind of Olympic style profiles of these athletes to tell these very moving stories about overcoming difficult circumstances to make it to the NFL, or how a father and son team was doing this. Um, and so it's fascinating. And then I watched on Saturday too, and you can tell that's how starved because I'm not a huge NFL fan. I really hate the draft. But now we're into like the sixth round, and the Vikings have like four picks. And they're getting like maybe their future slot corner backup at that point. And then it, it felt more like what you were describing, Sam, because then it's like we're going deep dive into like how you draft for a three position defensive tackle and et cetera, et cetera. But then my favorite part was like for 10 minutes, Trey Wingo was talking to Roger, not Goodell, Mr. Goodell, but like <laughs> Roger. And by this point, Roger Goodell is sitting in an easy chair. The screen of fans has gone away. He's wearing a T-shirt. And at one point, I swear they were talking about like he had to go out to clean his gutters at his house later. In the just day. like wiping Cheeto dust on the t-shirt. <laughs> just and I was like, I know I'm being manipulated. And like, sure enough, three days later, he announces he's going to forego his forty million dollars salary for the year. But like, what we were actually watching was the reinvention of Roger Goodell, is man like of the people. Every guy, yeah. Um, so Chris, like, you should have been there because I think the politics of it and the like political theater of it was kind of fascinating because he's not been an especially popular commissioner. I I, no, in fact, I can think of the other direction. He's one of the least popular uh, pro sports commissioners in American history. And that's saying so clearly. Yeah, I mean, I think he had decided this was going to be what they would do. And they talked about how we learn things from this COVID situation. We're going to do things differently next time. And then they announced that Vegas is going to host it in a couple of years. So um, we'll, we'll, time will tell. Okay, well, I think that's as much draft coverage as we'll ever do on the 252, fantasy or real life. Uh, 
I think it's time we finally got to a couple of sports that we have shamefully neglected, not just on this podcast this season, but in history and politics of sports. Chris and Sam, we're going to talk about horse racing and car racing when we come back after a break. This week in sports history. Akron, Ohio, April 30th, 1921. After a chaotic first year, the American Professional Football Association reorganizes, adding a constitution and membership criteria. Three of its 21 teams will fold before 1922 when the APFA is renamed the National Football League. Chattanooga, Tennessee, May 1st, 1926. A 19-year-old pitcher named Leroy Page makes his Negro League debut with the Black Lookouts. Better known as Satchel, Page goes on to win more games than any pitcher in baseball history, though he won't make his Major League debut until 1948. Las Vegas, Nevada, May 2nd, 2015. In what's billed as boxing's fight of the century, American Floyd Mayweather Jr. defeats Manny Pacquiao of the Philippines to unify the world welterweight title. The 48th win of Mayweather's undefeated professional career, the fight generates over $400 million in revenue. Louisville, Kentucky, May 2nd, 2009. In one of the most shocking results in the history of the Kentucky Derby, Mind That Bird beats 50 to 1 odds to come out of nowhere in the final furlong and win by over six lengths. As the field turns for home, top of the stretch, it's still joined in the dance with a tenuous lead. Regal Ransom and Pioneer of the Nile strike the front just outside the eight pole. Musket Man is coming hard down the side of the track, and Papa comes right there, too. Down toward the inside, coming on through. That is uh, Minot Bird now is coming on to take the lead as they come down to the finish. And a spectacular, spectacular upset. Minot Bird has won the Kentucky Derby. An impossible result here. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. All right, welcome back to this week's episode of the 252. Well, we talked about the Olympics in segment one because we've talked about that in class. And then we thought, well, maybe in segment two, we should spend some time to think about what have we missed so far. We're going to talk about horse racing and auto sports. So I want to start, Chris and Sam, by going back to the student survey that we did. Man, it feels like late January was a long time ago. Uh, but in that survey, one of the, we asked uh, about one of these sports. Now, none of our sports mentioned... Uh, sorry, none of our students mentioned either racing horses or driving cars among their athletic activities uh, at any point in their life. Mm -hmm. 
When we asked about sports that they liked or didn't like, we didn't actually ask about horse racing, but all but five of our students were either indifferent to motorsports or actively disliked them. And it was a pretty even split between those two categories. And then among the minority of students who thought that there were sports that Christians should not participate in, two students did mention horse racing. So that's as much as those two sports came up when we asked. So we thought we should give them some love because they are significant sports that have a lot of attention, a lot of money, uh, deep histories, especially horse racing. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time, I think, probably in horse racing. But let's start with auto racing. Why mm -hmm. do you think that motorsports are so unpopular with our students? And if I'm being honest with me and probably with you guys, too, I don't think either of you actually follow I, I this think, too closely. I think in part because it's. Whenever it's whenever we talk about it, there's always the question of, well, is it really a sport? And I think any mm. sport where that that's like a first paragraph question, like that's going to lead people to be polarized. Either you love it or if you're indifferent, you're kind of indifferent towards I don't even know what I think about if I think that's really a sport. Can we have the what is a sport conversation? Because this is actually something we're going to come back to in the last two weeks of class. And at least, so let me give you, actually, I'm going to go back to Victor Chai because he okay. quotes, I think, a British political scientist to give a definition of sports. And I'm just going to read it to you and we'll see if this applies to cars or horses. Uh, so sports, he defines as an institutionalized competitive activity that involves vigorous physical exertion or the use of relatively complex physical skills by individuals whose participation is motivated by a combination of intrinsic and extrinsic uh, factors. Sport is played under standardized conditions with strict limits of time and space. It has rules and stresses fair play, discipline, organization, and professionalism. So there are a lot of elements in there. You've got mm -hmm. institutionalized competitive activity, physical exertion and or skill, uh, motivation, standardized limits of time and space, rules, fair play, organization. Okay, so... Does motorsports fit that definition? I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and say by all of those terms, uh, premier level auto racing is in fact a sport. Absolutely. Um, it's clearly a sport. Uh, I, the, I mean, the only way where you might push back is say, what about real sort of physical exertion? But right. sitting in an Indy car for four hours and uh, um, requires an enormous both mental acuity and also physical strength. And yeah. I, th I think there's no question that these are sports. And frankly, there's no question that auto racers are athletes. Yeah. And, and, and skill and hand-eye coordination. I mean, these are some of the things that we, that we yeah. look at that make athletes great. And like, you have to have those things because it's so dangerous if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I think by that definition, it clearly is because it says, I mean, even if you wanted to be skeptical, like I think athlete, I mean, racers have at least stamina, right? Mm -hmm. Like, even if you want to say, well, it's not physical exertion in the same way that running up and down a soccer pitch is, it definitely has the physical skill and it's got all the other elements. It seems clearly a sport. So Let's come back to that definition for horse racing later. Um, why else might auto racing be unpopular? Is it possible that unlike a lot of the other sports we've talked about, this is one that has not quite escaped its regional origins? I think that's and, a big piece of it. And it's because we're in Minnesota asking the question if we we're in Alabama or Georgia or even maybe like uh, Indiana, right? We've, mm -hmm. We actually did a whole episode on motorsports with Sarah Shady, our philosophy colleague who's from Indiana. But is it a regional kind of problem here? Well, what's interesting, too, is I feel like, and I'm going to get the the timeline of this wrong, but was it probably 15 or 20 years ago? It's like NASCAR uh, took its shot at, like, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's going to be the other major sport. I mean, I feel like it got 
Um, I feel like it, it was its athletes, we'll use that word, it, it, its drivers were spokespeople for everything. It seemed like it seemed like the sponsorships didn't just work in the direction of we're going to put our logo on your car, but we're going to put your car on our product. It felt like NASCAR was really made this push and it kind of didn't, it didn't take to, it didn't take or, in the or, way that last. people had hoped. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't last. I, I think it was effective at the time. And I think if you pulled, that's what uh, I mean by it didn't take though. Like, like if oh, it yeah, takes, yeah. that means it continues and it's organic, sure. it feels organic. Sure. Right. Yeah. I and think I think our, Sorry, Chris, go ahead. I think it's much more likely that if you polled Americans today and said, name NASCAR drivers, they'd still name Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr., who were sort of the premier names of that time, neither of whom is racing competitively right now. Right. right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the survey is actually a good test of that because you would think we'd at least have a few people in the kind of modest fan category because they grew up in the midst of all of that and they've watched these races on Fox or I don't know if ESPN still runs any of them. And I don't think it did take, I mean, so a little bit of the history here. I mean, first of all, there are multiple kinds of motorsports, right? To this day, you've still got Formula One, which is more popular abroad than this country. You've got the Indianapolis 500 is very old, but it also feels like kind of a once a year sort of event as most of us engage with it. I think most of us, if we hear motorsports in this country, what we're thinking is NASCAR, mm-hmm. which is actually only organized after World War II. Uh, you know, it's kind of origins in the South, but really is a Southeastern sport until what Sam just described in the early, you know, I guess the 90s, early 21st century, yeah. when it made a bid to go national. Chris, as our European historian, uh, why is Formula One's really big in places in Europe, right? It is, yeah. Why? Um... I do not know. I think, and I, I'm somebody who probably should have watched Ford versus Ferrari because I think I might actually get a little bit of insight into this part of the culture. This is all I know is there is a long tradition, not just of Formula One, but of kind of like distance racing events, rally sports. Mm-hmm. Like think of Le Mans, 24 hours of racing. You know, that was very popular as a kind of, there were a lot of endurance sort of sports in the 1920s. Um, that really were fads here. I think of like dancing competitions in Pole City. I mean, like I, I almost put Le Mans in that. I don't know. I, I wonder if it has any kind of affinity with like bike racing being popular, but there's something about using contraptions to do long distance kind of events that for whatever reason has become part of European sporting culture more than maybe Americans with their short attention spans can't fathom. I I really have no good explanation, but you're right. And like, I mean, Formula One racers are genuine sports superstars in European sports culture. Right, I mean, if you look at it, at least this used to be true, I haven't seen these in a while, but if you looked at the highest paid athletes once you've put endorsements in there globally, I mean, F1 racers were ahead of soccer stars that you would assume would be like the most marketable people in the world. Yeah, and I don't know how much it's related to the nature of corporate sponsorship and just like those car companies have invested in that in ways that I'm not sure American car, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were part of NASCAR, but I don't think we necessarily associate Ford, Chevy, Buick with NASCAR necessarily in the way you would associate some of the European automakers with Formula One. Um, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I'm way out of my depth here. I want to throw one other uh, tweak into this conversation too, which is that at least in the United States, Compared to other sports, uh, which are sort of really broadly popular, like basketball, football, baseball, et cetera, which we talked about, and we talked about the political signaling of those sports, NASCAR is one of the clearest political signals of any sport in the United States. Um, the it is the most reliably conservative demographic. Now, we could say that it's simply because of regionalism, which we've already discussed, that the South is the most uh, – 
sort of socially conservative part of the United States, and it's also where NASCAR is popular, you know, ergo, there's a correlation there. But it could also be that outside of the South, where that regional effect occurs, elsewhere, really devoting yourself to NASCAR is a way of signaling something about yourself. And I think that that might be having an impact in our part of the country. It could be true. I think there's also probably a rural versus urban-suburban divide. Like, I mean, there is Absolutely. car racing in Minnesota, but it's up at Brainerd. Exactly. Right? International Motor Speedway, which is very much a red part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it is interesting. I wonder then why it didn't show up with our group. Like, we didn't ask our students about their politics, but if they're a kind of typical cross-section of Bethel students, you know, they're they're more conservative than than probably their generation. And that didn't necessarily show up in their signaled support for motorsports, but that that yeah. otherwise would make a lot of sense. Okay, so that that's we'll come back to autosports because I have one other thing I want to talk about there. But we've actually got someone who really genuinely loves horse racing sitting in on this conversation. So Sam, we're not going to interview you a little bit, as I know you wouldn't think this to look at Sam. He seems like a mild mannered CWC professor, but he actually <laughs> really loves horse racing. Uh, we're kind of right entering the prime of your sports season, or at least we would be without COVID. Right. We're coming up on the Kentucky Derby here. Um, yeah, I, I'm, we're not going to talk a lot about the history here, but here is my way of explaining, given what we've all this, what we've talked about with other sports in the class, horse racing is kind of like baseball, except it drops off a lot more in popularity than even baseball does after World War II. Is that a fair kind of summary of the trajectory? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and what's interesting is I'm, I'm looking at the, um, the the triple crown winners and thinking about World War II as a, as a sort of uh, moment here. You have in 1937, 1941, 1943, 1946, 1948, you have triple crown winners, horses mm-hmm. that I mean, and then and then it's not until the 70s again that you have a superstar horse like that, too. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would, that's that's absolutely true. I feel like like it has a drop off. It drops off earlier than boxing, too. I mean, I think about horse racing and boxing as two sports that at a different time in America were the biggest thing. Well, and I did think about boxing, too, because horse racing does show up on the sports calendar periodically for very special events, you know, whether it's the Triple Crown or especially if there's a horse in the running for a Triple Crown in the same way that, you know, we mentioned a certain boxing match in this week in sports or every once in a while, there's a, a certain boxer who really kind of captures the imagination, but sure. otherwise it, it has become this kind of marginal niche sport, but it, it's developing about the same time as baseball. You know, it's really coming of age in the late 19th century in this country. And it goes back to Britain like baseball does. Um, I mean, I'd say it's as popular. I think that's probably true in the late 19th, even into the, like the 1930s, into the mm-hmm. 1940s. Like it's and not just the Triple Crown races, but generally its calendar attracts a lot of spectators, a lot of newspaper coverage, um, just like baseball does. Um, one difference, though, I'd point out is that horse racing becomes a national phenomenon much faster than baseball does. Like the, the West Coast really is a bastion of horse racing long before the Dodgers and Giants move out there. Think of if you've ever seen the movie Seabiscuit, for example, that Seabiscuit is a California horse that comes east to race against, is it War Admiral? Mm-hmm. I think so, race? yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it actually has like, it's not just a northeastern kind of thing like baseball was for so long. It's really a countrywide sort of thing. But it also does have a kind of regionalism to it as well, right? There, there are certain parts of the country that really are the hotbeds of horse breeding and horse racing. I said I was going to interview you, and then I just talked a lot. I, no, I you're, like I that's you great. A tactical question, because um, mm-hmm. I just want the answers. How often can you race a horse? Like, what's the what's the lag time between races where you can put a horse in on the field? It, well, it it really depends on the the 
quality of the horse. And I'm going to say, um, so I think we do need to do the, is this a sport thing? And I think one of the big issues, and I will say this is personally an issue for me with, with horse racing, more so than even the fact that it's like rests so deeply on gambling, um, which I don't do, uh, is that unlike other sports, horse racing has unwilling uh, people competing in it, or not people, mm. unwilling uh, contestants, right? That we don't know that the horse wants to race. I mean, we can be told, yeah, it loves to go out there and just open up and run, but we've never heard a horse tell us that. Um, you know, so 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 I want to say that that's that's a problematic thing. I, I spend a lot of time with uh, with Annie Berglund, and we talk about animal rights stuff. And like, I'm convicted about horse racing. At the same time, like, it's a beautiful sport, and I love it. But. Um, to, to answer your question, Chris, it really depends on the quality of the horse, too. Like, how much are you grooming this horse for a big stakes race? I mean, you need to have enough runs to know kind of what you have in that horse. But sometimes you'll see derby horses that haven't, that have done just enough to qualify, but they really don't want to do that much. And then if a horse wins a big race, especially if a horse wins the derby and, let's say, doesn't win the Preakness, you're not likely necessarily to see that horse in the Belmont because that horse automatically has so much cachet and value when you send it to uh, when you send it to stud, you know, when you send it to breeding. Now I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the name of the horse. I think it was Smarty Jones was a gelding, so like it mm -hmm. couldn't have. So like the, and it Smarty Jones didn't end up winning the Triple Crown, but he won the first two. And there was this that was uh, probably a decade ago, there was this sense of, oh, this is a horse we may actually see run a lot because it doesn't, it ha its only value is as a celebrity racehorse because it can't, um, it can't Produce have. Offspring. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's the reason you I, mentioned, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Well, the reason I asked that is I was trying to, is I'm trying as a social scientist trying to think about why uh, horse racing becomes very popular and then falls off somewhat is I, is I was wondering if maybe the periodicity of how often you can race a horse is more, uh, is easier to cover with newspaper and falls and becomes less intriguing once we get more radio, once we get more television, especially, you know, a baseball player can be trotted out almost every day during the season. A basketball player can play every couple of days. A football player can play once a week. If a horse can only race a few times, maybe there's less compelling. Uh, yeah. I would say it, it's, it's almost like college basketball is now where it's a lot of one and done. Like you, you're going to see this, this star race for, you know, a, a few times and then they're gone and you're never going to see uh, the difference is there's no MBA for them to go to. They go to breeding instead. So you it's it's harder to build stars that, you know, somebody a, a horse that you're going to see for years and years. So, Sam, you've mentioned at least a couple of things I want to pick up on, because one reason we want to talk about these two sports is they not only let us kind of review some concepts from a different angle, but they let us preview some things we're going to talk about in our fourth quarter which we've kind of styled the future of sports and looking at some changes that are, that, are, that are pending in the 21st century. So one thing that students might explore next week with Dr. Moore is gambling in sports. And so here we're into a sport where gambling is not peripheral. It is absolutely, it's the raison d'etre in some ways, at least for many of its participants in why you have the sport. So now you don't gamble on sports, but um, can you explain to those who have no knowledge of horse racing whatsoever? I mean, how central is gambling to horse racing? It's the reason you go. I mean, like it's the reason that they that the races exist. Like, like if you go to a if you go to Canterbury Park, let's say, like if you if the three of us were to go to spend a day at the races, we would feel out of place because we'd feel like we're the only people here who aren't 
gambling, like who aren't betting on the races. Like, cause for most people, that's why you're there. Like that's, you're there. Like this is a, this is our random number generator that, that we're, that we're, we're betting on. And in fact, you can go, when you go inside at Canterbury, you can go do simulcast racing. So you can watch the races at Santa Anita and bet on that. And there are plenty of people who don't have a ton of interest necessarily in, I mean, there's lots of people who love the, like, we are at this sporting event, but like you could go to a baseball game and not have any stakes in it and be like, this is a fun day. It would be kind of strange to, and I've done this to go to Canterbury and not, you know, not have a, a financial stake in what's happening. Like everybody there does. And it now what it does mean is that when a race, especially a great race is happening, especially a close race, there is a different kind of energy in the crowd. Imagine if you were at a NBA basketball game where everyone had a bet on the game, mm. the different stakes that the fans would have. I had the, one of the strangest experiences of my life was in 1998. My family went to Las Vegas. I was a Bethel student. My family went to Las Vegas for spring break and the Gophers were in the, um, the NIT that year and they won the NIT. And I watched the Gophers championship game, for the NIT in a Las Vegas sports book. And there were so many people who were so excited, but they were excited about the point spread and not about the Gophers winning. And it was such a strange, a strange thing. So like, like that's what, I mean, basically you go to a sports book to watch horses race. Hmm. Right. So this, this is something we'll talk more about, but it is an oddity because this was a kind of legalized sports gambling throughout its entire history in ways where gambling was viewed askance uh, for reasons we'll probably get to next week, Chris. Um, yeah. Uh, in all other sports. Uh, I mean, another difference then, so there are multiple reasons why you race. One that you've hinted at is what you call putting them out to stud. Mm -hmm. So horse racing is also intimately tied to scientific breeding of non-willing participants. So mm -hmm. this is this is fascinating, right? I mean, like, um, this is going to come up in our last week of class because I'm going to do a lecture about, among other well, performance enhancement, we'll talk about steroids and doping, but what's ultimately going to be about is a movement called transhumanism, which suggests that students are actually going to read an op-ed by a transhumanist suggesting we should actually be using science and technology to further refine the human machine in the same way we do with Formula One racing with cars and that we do with horses. Now, uh, breeding in humans gets us into discussion of eugenics, and that gets uncomfortable really quickly, where you're trying to select out certain traits by breeding. And the closest we come is, like I mentioned, there are a lot of father and son draft combinations in the NFL draft. Like, it's not surprising to have athletes' offspring do well. But in horse racing, this is entirely the point. Right. right. This is where a and lot it, of the revenue is fact, generated. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when you read a racing form, you're seeing the lineage of this horse. You're like, oh, this is a, this has, this is a horse's, you know, grandsire was Northern Dancer. Okay, well, that might mean something. And, mm -hmm. and actually there are horses that are famous, not because they won races, but because their family tree, uh, their prodigy have all these big stakes winners in there. So that's like another mm -hmm. way to be a champion horse. Right. And, um. I mean, I think maybe students, if you end up doing that, we'll talk about your assignment in a second. Like, if you feel your hackles going up a little bit about this idea, I mean, it, maybe it's because it feels like, oh, are we just going to treat humans in the same way? You know, are we going to find ways to genetically isolate certain traits to produce certain kinds of athletes? That, that it seems to raise um, kind of dysphobic, uh, apocalyptic scenarios that usually belong to science fiction, right? Um, I mentioned, though, that this author we'll talk to also compares to, to car racing. He uses this analogy of why don't we treat human athletes the way we treat Formula One racing? 
where you've got a team of scientists and engineers working to essentially refine an engine, a machine, so that it can compete and win races or compete in whatever the sport is. So car racing is odd in that, of course we do that. I mean, in there, the athlete is the driver, but in some ways, it's really about the machine. It's about the pit crew. It's about the design. It's about the materials that go into that. Um, should that complicate our view of, I mean, we already decided this is a sport because of matter definition, but should that complicate our view of, of how we look at uh, motorsports? That ultimately, it's not just about human performance and the way that athletic performance seems to matter in all other sports. It's actually about all these other, it, it really does depend on engineers are helping determine the outcome of these events, right? And mechanics are helping determine the outcome of these events in ways we don't think about athletic trainers in the same way. Right, but but the, I mean, we if you look at golf, if you look at the golf clubs that a player uses on the tour now versus what a player was using on the tour in the 1950s, like there are lots of engineers and scientists who who did that mm -hmm. too, you know? And and so like, I think the, the uh, intersection of technology and sports, whether it is actually the, the items you're using while you're playing, the quality of, sh I mean, quality of shoes players were wearing in the seventies versus now in basketball, or even like, you know, as you were describing that, I was thinking, well, some of these, so a lot of athletes have that, right? How, how it's how a nutritionist, right. Or a, or somebody who is their personal trainer, who sometimes is a, then is hired onto the staff of a team for a particular star player. Like it starts to feel like there already is a team around some of these things. Well, well, that's exactly yeah. what I want students to think about is like, in some ways, we absolutely believe there should be performance enhancement, right? And there are perfectly legitimate ways to do it. And that includes technological change. In the lecture, I give the example of pole vault records changing over time because of a very simple piece of technology called a pole that is made of different <laughs> materials, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then there are other things, whether it's chemical enhancements, or maybe we start thinking about embedding machines in athletes to make them run faster where it starts to feel illegitimate. So I just want students, if they if they explore that topic, I mean, those are the kind of ethical and other sorts of issues I want them to be wrestling with because it's been there the whole time. We just haven't talked about technology in sports in depth to this point. So Chris, we should say a little bit about where mm -hmm. we're headed because students are wrapping up our segment on sports and international relations with this book review of Victor Cha. We only have two weeks because of the way the schedule is being compressed, but in our two full weeks to start the month of May, we're looking into the future of sports. And what we're going to do each week is give students a choice of two topics to explore. <laughs> a and fork so, in the road, if you will. Exactly. And so each time you get to follow one of us down a path to just start to explore a kind of topic. So mm -hmm. uh, the week starting May 4th, you're going to be talking about gambling. That's right. And I'm going to be talking about media, journalism, and celebrity, which are kind of uh, interrelated topics. Um, so I don't know how much you want to pre preview that. I, I can say more about journalism in a second. Yeah, let me say something a little bit here. So I, uh, I want to say I have a reputation, at least amongst my political science students, for offering some kind of slightly antibethical um, uh, endorsement of gambling. Like Sam, I do not gamble. Uh, but because I roll dice for Monte Carlo quizzes and things like that, I got this reputation as somebody who you know, likes to leave some things up to chance. Uh, we will be talking about the complicated relationship that gambling has with sports. Uh, as Sam has said, uh, some sports seem to exist for the purpose of gambling. And we'll talk a little bit about why, especially amongst the evangelical tradition, uh, gambling has been one of those things that's so um, 
uh, so reviled that's actually made its way into Bethel's uh, covenant for life together amongst other things too. And so the politics around legalized gambling and how that has interfaced with sports will be a topic of conversation as well as uh, perhaps the future of this event and how gambling has changed with technology. So we'll see some correspondence there as well. And that's maybe the theme to look for next week is how we're, I mean, this is something with a deep history, but it's really going through change right now. We're seeing the possible enormous spread of sports gambling because of some some decisions. Uh, for my part, I'll be talking about media and journalism. So I'll talk about some of that history, whether it's newspapers, radio. Uh, we'll certainly talk a lot about ESPN and more recent developments. But that, again, is something where newspapers are becoming extinct and the nature of sports media is changing very quickly. We're actually going to talk to a Bethel alum hopefully next week on the podcast who's lived through some of those changes. So what we're going to do, well, we'll send this out as an email to you, but just to give you a preview, you will get to pick one of these lectures to listen to. We'll have some short readings to go with this from your textbook and then one or two other online pieces. And then you'll have an online Monte Carlo quiz to answer questions about. And then we'll come back to this in the podcast next Thursday. And then we'll do the, whole, the same thing uh, the last week of class with two different topics. I'll be talking about performance enhancement. And Chris, what will you be talking about? I... <laughs> we gotta look at my notes uh, here, man. <laughs> I think it's uh, esports. That's right. Uh, esports. Well, and and sort of the per, uh, the sports around sports. And so right. this is uh, this is fantasy sports. Uh, yeah. But I'm really interested in how in being a. I'm not a future again. Like I'm not a gambler. Um, I, as my training, I'm not a futurist. But I am interested in how. Um, technologies, emergent technologies might change what we think of as sports. Um, if auto racing doesn't become a sport until automobiles become worth racing, uh, then, then what kinds of things might be playing in the future? And I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit about video games, man. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, fantasy sports and how those things uh, become activities that consume our time, consume our leisure, and maybe become competitive too. Yeah, so we'll be coming back to the question of what is sports? How is that changing? Yeah. And it is really the future-facing part of the class. And I would guess one way or another, our final exam, will try to maybe look to the future a little bit, or maybe we'll think about sports after COVID or something like that. Yeah. So that's where we're headed. Two more weeks of class, then into a final exam. Uh, Moodle will have everything for you. Okay, I think that's enough for segment two. We've got one more segment to get to after a short break. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. We're back. As always, we're running out of time, really, this time. So let's go right into our three to see, no televised sports. But there are some other things you can put your eyes on if you enjoy sports. Chris Moore, start us off. Well, it's another book recommendation from me. My wife and God, I have... You in reading. What's that about? I know. It's a thing. 
My wife and I have a 40-year collection of Newbery Medal winning books. For those of you who may have repressed middle school, the Newbery Medal is given yearly to an outstanding book intended for grades 5 to 7, roughly sort of 10 to 12-year-olds. My recommendation is the 2015 winner, The Crossover, by Kwame Alexander. The Crossover, which also won the Credit Scott King Honor Award, is the story of Josh and Jordan Bell, twin sons of a former pro basketball dad and an assistant principal mom. The boys have game, too, both on and off the court. And it's those coming-of-age relationships that drive the story. The whole novel, by the way, is told in verse, which makes it a fun, engaging, and very propulsive read. Okay, Sam Albury. I'm keeping it literary as well. Uh, now that we've reached late April, my eyes and heart turned towards Dr. Gertz's favorite sport of baseball. I'm not going to rec recommend a video this week. Instead, I want to point you to perhaps the greatest piece of baseball writing ever penned. It was 60 years ago this fall, September 28, 1960, to be precise, when John Updike visited Boston's Fenway Park and watched Red Sox great Ted Williams play his last game. In his final trip to the plate, Williams famously hit his 521st career home run. Updike cataloged the homer, the day, and Williams' entire career and complicated relationship to the city and people of Boston in his New Yorker essay, Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu. You could read the whole thing for free on newyorker.com, but just to whet your appetite, here's Updike's description of the aftermath of Williams Homer. Like a feather caught in a vortex, Williams ran around the square of bases at the center of our beseeching screaming. He ran as he always ran out home runs, hurriedly, unsmiling, head down, as if our praise were a storm of rain to get out of. He didn't tip his cap, though we thumped, wept, and chanted, we want Ted. For minutes after, he hid in the dugout. He did not come back. Our noise for some seconds passed beyond excitement into a kind of immense open anguish, a wailing cry to be saved. But immortality is non-transferable. The paper said that the other players and even the umpires on the field begged him to come out and acknowledge us in some way. But he never had, and he did not now. Gods do not answer letters. Ah, I got chills. That's ah. great. It's so okay. good. I'll read that. Okay, I'll stick with my favorite sport, but I'll take it in a non-literary direction. We're still waiting to hear if and when live Major League Baseball will be returning to a park near or very far from you. But in the meantime, let me recommend that you all check out my favorite version of fantasy sports, Stratomatic. You can play it online and in sports ranging from hockey to football to basketball, but my favorite version of Stratomatic is the card and dice baseball game that's been around since 1961. If you listen closely to part two of my series on African-American sports history, you might remember that my son Isaiah and I are in the middle of our fifth Strat season, this time with eight teams drafted from among all the players in baseball's Hall of Fame. Entering the last two series before the playoffs, the leading players are Pedro Martinez, 6-2 and two with 1.99 ERA and almost 11 strikeouts per nine innings, and his battery mate, Josh Gibson, who's top three in batting average, on-base, slugging, OPS, total bases, home runs, and doubles, and throwing out 57% of attempted base stealers. You can't really watch our season, uh, but you can follow along as Stratomatic.com simulates every single day of what was supposed to be the 2020 MLB season. After a terrible start, your hometown favorites have surged into first place in the AL Central with Jose Barrios, Nelson Cruz, and Max Kepler leading the Minnesota Twins to first place with a 19-12 and 12 record. Check it out. All right, guys, a long but I think pretty good episode. Uh, thanks for joining us on the 252. Chris Moore, take us away. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thank you for listening. You can always get a hold of us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Uh, we hope to be back in your podcast feed real soon. And until we are, go Royals. <laughs>